Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Today, we will discuss the career pathways in thoracic oncology. In thoracic oncology, we have the traditional pathway of academic oncology. We, in academic oncologists, you could focus on clinical, basic science, or translational research. And we have the other traditional pathway of community oncology or private practice. Well, we have seen a growing number of options for many thoracic oncologists, including surgeons, pathologists, radiation oncologists, etc., including options in industry, government, administration or hospital management, and nonprofit organizations. While we won't have a guest that covers all the possible career pathways in thoracic oncology, we hope the experiences of our guests will provide insights about the evolving field of thoracic oncology and academic oncology. First, I had the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Prunella Billman from Sydney, Australia. Dr. Bimman is a medical oncologist at Concord Repatriation General Hospital with clinical expertise in managing lung cancer and gastrointestinal cancers. She's a clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney, head of the medical oncology department at Concord Hospital, and ex-chair of the Medical Oncology Group of Australia. Welcome. Hi, Najas. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you and it's quite, you know, you are in the morning, we're not evenings here. So I love how uh, technology can connect us and make this possible. Yeah, no, 100%. As I said, great to be here. I'm wide awake, by the way. So I'm hoping to contribute to the conversation <laughs> today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We also had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Clarissa Matias. Dr. Matias is a medical oncologist and director of Oncoclinicals in Brazil. She's a member of the ASCO International Quality Steering Group and the Lung Cancer Committee. Dr. Martias served on the ISLC Doctor of Directors and has been an active member of ISLC. Welcome, Dr. Matias. Thank you so much, Andre. It's great to be here, Dr. Duma. It's really great to be here with you. you. I have such a great admiration for you. And it's great to be here with uh, Dr. Billman also. Thank you, Pranella. And as we move forward, we, the three of us know each other. So we're going to be addressing each other by first name as this is a conversation between friends. As I said, I had the pleasure of knowing the two of you for some time and I have admired your work for longer than that. You both are trailblazers in the field of thoracic oncology. It is very hard to condense your whole career in a few minutes, but I would like to ask the two of you to share with us and our audience how your career in thoracic oncology started. I will start with Prunella. Yeah, thanks, Nardis. I think mine was just by default, really. Australia has a different setup to the United States in terms of oncology. We don't necessarily subspecialize in just one cancer stream. We usually subspecialize in multiple cancer streams. 
And we're not employed as, for example, thoracic oncologists. We're employed as medical oncologists who then work in lung cancer. So it is slightly different. So I first started in lung cancer, though, during my PhD. So when I finished my training and before I became a consultant, I did a study in lung cancer as part of my PhD studies. And through that, I became involved in the Cancer Cooperative Research Group in lung cancer at the time, which was known as the ALTG. And so that exposed me to the lung cancer world, at least in Australia. And then I got a part-time consultant job and by chance that was in lung cancer. So things were sort of all merging together and I liked it more and more. One of the key triggers I remember around that time is that I went to my first world lung conference on lung cancer in um, San Francisco. And it was not, it was unforgettable for several reasons, but one of those was um, Tony Mock presented the IPAS study. And I remember even his slides were kind of rock star. They were like fluorescent. They were amazing. Those curves on um, mutation status being the predictor for efficacy to tyrosine kinase inhibitors were amazing. But that sort of set me on my way. And so that's how I started my career in lung cancer. Thank you, Brunella. And Clarissa, how was your start in thoracic oncology? And even before that, that you wanted to do oncology at all? So when I went into my, I got into my fellowship, Almost 30 years ago, we, I was actually a hematology and oncology fellow at University of Pennsylvania, and we had no division at that time. So during the clinics, we could like be more with uh, breast cancer or lung cancer. And I, I had the pleasure of having clinic with uh, Dr. Joe Treat at that time at Penn and Stephen Hahn, who's now at FDA. And um, I, fell in love with uh, lung cancer. It was really the beginning. It was way before target therapy. and uh, But the patients were really fascinating. And they were like really in chemotherapy worked at that time. It was the only thing we had. It was really amazing how we could change their quality of life and, and make some great improvements in their lives. And then I'm married to a pulmonologist, so my world was really interconnected with lung cancer. So when I came back to Brazil to start my practice, that's when, at that time, things started to specialize in medical oncology. So I had to sort of choose one specific area to lecture and to really um, see more patients and develop my expertise. And that's how I chose lung cancer, and a few years ago, we created the uh, GEBOT, which was the Brazilian Thoracic Oncology Group, and this was amazing how a group of physicians really got together and, you know, developed this research center to really form a lot of new medical oncologists and radiation oncologists, and I'm absolutely fascinated by lung cancer, and it's been great to see the history. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think for some of our listeners who, you know, have been trained with target therapy and immunotherapy, you know, it's hard to understand that there was a time in which only carboplatin and taxol was what available for many patients. So it is hard to, you know, for some people that may have trained before targeting immunotherapy therapy, that, you know, back in the days, there was only carboplatin and taxol for many other patients. And now there's so many treatment options and so many fancy names. I was talking to a medical student on Monday and she said, you guys have so many drugs. And I didn't train long time ago, but many of these drugs have been approved in the last four years. 
as we continue to talk about your careers, you know, there is no a career without challenges. Many of us have faced careers early in the middle later. What are some of these challenges that you face in your career and what do you learn from these challenges? I will start with Prunella. I don't think my challenges have been very different to many other females in oncology and indeed in medicine. And I think the challenges that I face in my career have largely been related to my gender and the gender inequity. Often felt up against it. And I think many people will know what I mean by that. Often females have been in the minority. Things are harder. There's often family commitments that exhaust your time outside of medicine. There's certain attitudes, pervading attitudes that you encounter in your day-to-day life. When I started in thoracic oncology in Australia, there weren't many female role models. And I found that difficult. That made me want to be one myself. But the people above me and who were more senior than me were mostly males. I must say that many of those were encouraging and I value as mentors, but often it's not the same as having those female mentors. So I put the broad challenge down to being a female, being junior, being younger, having family and having to put that all together in order to progress in my career when many people, many I don't want to make it a fight against males because that's not how I see it, but it's more the the barriers that females face rather than the barriers that males don't face. Anyway, I think it's, you know, when I started my career, I got my letters in oncology, which meant I was a senior back in 2008. Things were very different then to what they are now. And I'm really glad that I've been part of that wave of improvement. There's a long way to go, but my experiences have made me who I am as a doctor who I am as an oncologist, who I am as a thoracic oncologist, who I am as a mentor. And I wouldn't give any of it back. But the plan is to mean that people like me don't have those challenges in the future. And that's true, Prunella. What you're mentioning has been supported for by data. Data are many different careers and what, unfortunately, women in not thoracic oncology, but all academic medicine, they need to check twice as many boxes to be considered equal. And as we continue to improve the environment for women in thoracic oncology, we're learning from those mistakes. Clarissa, the same question to you. What are some of those challenges that you may have faced during your career and what do you learn from those? So I was really fortunate to have some great female mentors during my fellowships, such as Lynn Schechter, who's going to be the president of ASCO soon. And having a male mentor, Dan Haller, that really didn't see me as different for being a woman and for actually being a foreigner, which was sometimes even worse than being a woman. So this really created sort of thick skin, I I can say that. And when I came back to Brazil, there were very few females in you know, high positions here, especially in the Brazilian Society of Clinical Oncologists. So in 40 years, I was the second president of the Brazilian Society of Clinical Oncology. And I remember when I decided to run for presidency, someone said, oh, but you, you were a female and you were from northeast of Brazil. And I said, yes, it's me. We are going to run. And actually, we did such a great job with my 
half female group of directors. And then throughout lung cancer, I've had some great companions who have been great mentors, such as Heather Wakely and Judy and, you know, many people who really have families and have their lives, but they commit their lives to lung cancer also and to taking care of patients. And I see ISOC, really, Enriqueta Felipe, so many women who were really, really important to me along those lines. And I think we are very fortunate to be part of this and to be part of ISOC where we had the first women's forum that I know of. And it was wonderful to have it organized by you and, and you know, be part of this discussion because we have to it's not making you know a flag out out of being a woman but it's really opening a path to new people to come thank you for sharing that and that's linked to another question that we asked next but to you as the junior person in this conversation i want to let you know how important it has been for me my mentees and people in my generation to get to interact with you since I met the both of you as a trainee when I met you, you both were very friendly and open and interacted instead of, you know, you are the junior and you are the senior. And that was very important to me. Like I knew Prunella only from me- social media. And I was like, you want to go and get a coffee? And like we escaped and got a coffee in Barcelona. And when I remember seeing Clarissa, you were perfectly dressed at work conference in Denver. And I was like, who is this woman that's so smart and she's also, you know, perfectly dressed and there are goals that, you know, I took into account. And I remember the first time I introduced myself to you, Clarissa, I was so nervous. And Tiziana was telling me, she's very nice, but your role modeling, the two of you have made many things possible for me and the generation that will come. So as we're talking about women in thoracic oncology, the field was very limited to the number of women. We're luckily changing this. You know, we have our first female ISLC CEO and our second female president, which I still think second female president in this history of the organization is still very low. I will start with Brunella. What have you seen and what we can continue to improve regarding the inclusion of women in thoracic oncology? Look, the more women, the merrier to me. I think we should only be encouraging it. And I really think it's the role modeling that really is one of the most encouraging things that we can do without seeing people like yourself or people who you think you might want to be. It's really hard to create that aspiration, to have that aspiration rather, but also to create that pathway to where you want to be. And I think that's one of the things that was hard for me is that in Australia, medical oncology is a relatively junior specialty. And again, I, when I was a trainee, I was at the forefront of a wave of trainees which came behind me. So there wasn't really a lot of senior female people there for us to follow. But throughout my career, I think myself and many peers have become those role models. And I think we are, you know, do try and show that this is one pathway to where you might want to go and being female shouldn't stop you. I think the overall attitudes of organisations are really super important and I really think that the um, IASLC does a great job of that. 
you know, they make dedicated, they have female presidents, as you say, they make a determined effort to have adequate female representation at conferences. And I notice that. I like, I notice that. If other people don't notice it, I certainly notice it. I don't, part of my story in the past has been, I've not, I've said no to conferences and to programs when I've seen the list of speakers are male. I'm not interested in going to those those days or conferences. And so I want to know that there's sufficient representation of the membership of the people for me to be interested in going there. And I want to hear from a range of people, both male and female, and of minority groups, because I think that adds diversity, it adds interest, and it adds different views and experiences that I think are really important. So I think definitely the views of the organisations are really important as well. And then look at the call face, just making it easier for females to get there. And that might be family-friendly policies, that might be childcare at conferences, just minor things that, that seem small. I was reminded on Twitter this week, I mean, this is a nice story. Back when I was chair of the Medical Oncology Group of Australia, we had a meeting over in Perth, which is on the western coast of seaboard of Australia. And most people live on the eastern seaboard. So it's a fair way to travel for many people. And I thought it was super important to actually establish childcare at the meeting in order to encourage the young females to attend. But then what happened is that pandemic hit, so that, that conference got cancelled. So the first face-to-face -face annual meeting of the Medical Oncology Group of Australia is this year. It's in Cairns, in Queensland. And I was reminded on Twitter that actually they've got childcare available. And I thought that was really good because that was something that we tried to instigate several years ago, but the Medical Oncology Group of Australia as an organisation has run with that and that's going to be something in place forever going forward and that makes a difference to people and there's been a really strong positive reaction to that on Twitter this week. And so I think that's a nice happy story, but it's little things like that that count as well. That's true and little things that we, you know, welcome all different types of people, not only about gender. So Clarissa, you have been involved with ISLC closely, you know, as a member of the board of directors, a leader in Brazil with the organization. What have you seen and what can we improve regarding the inclusion of women in thoracic oncology? So first of all, I'm so thrilled to listen to what you said, because I think it's great to hear that at some point you can inspire other people. And when we think about career a lot of times when we discuss with younger females, they say, oh my God, do I have to stop something to do something else? Like they want to have children or, you know, if you want, if they want to have a good marriage, for example, or if they need to take care of their parents. And it's really great to be able to try to organize your time to be present in many different phases of your life. So I think this support is really great in having the, the Women's Forum at the World Cancer meeting was wonderful. I think we, we really started something new in seeing surgeons who are female and are so great in what they do, which is much harder than actually being a medical oncologist. Being a female surgeon, it's really tough. And we see many people like Paula Gauji and Julia Veronese who are really opening very beautiful paths into our lives. And then also, I think, providing little things, like which are not that little, but, you know, having 
mentors who could really bring and invite other women to be co-authors, for example, and to be speakers and encourage them. I think having this balance between men and women, and Pranella is right, if we look at the meetings from the past, and I'm old enough to say that, we used to go to meetings where all the people were men, and there was no, no really, no one cared about if a woman was speaking or not, and no one cared about developing their abilities to do so. So I think ISOC really encouraged people to bring women. Now I'm sure that with Karen Kelly, we can make this even better now. And Heather Weekly has been really a major role model to many women. And I think we can just, we, and we should continue to discuss this because that's the only thing, way we can improve things is discussing it. And I can tell you when there was a plenary and we saw equal number of females, that really matters. And I think people say, oh, those little things, it really matters because it makes this possible. Like, you know, you can do what you can see and that's important. As we circle back to the career discussion, the pandemic certainly changed many things. Life will never be the same. How the two of you pivot? during the pandemic and remain motivated and productive during these days. I will start with Pranella. Thanks, Nardis. I mean, it's frightening to think that it's now 2022 and the pandemic has been raging for more than two years, you know, and the last time we saw each other face-to-face was back in 2019 at World Lung in Barcelona, which was peak conferences to me. But it's been, you know, so much has changed in that time in both our working lives and our personal lives. And I mean, certainly a new normal for everyone and everything going forward. For me personally, in Australia, like we had a probably a different experience to the many other countries in the world. We, you know, people say we've done well with COVID and that involved a lot of, and we did do well. You know, Omicron has sort of changed that and opening up the country has changed that. But we did have a different experiences. It did involve lots of lockdowns though, and there was personal costs of that. I would say me personally, what I've got out of it is just really, really, really evaluating what is important to me and what is important to me in my personal life and how I can align my working life with that personal life to go forward. And the really, I feel that I'm at a bit of a career, at a time in my career where I can, I have the good fortune of being in that position where I can pivot and go forward in a different way to perhaps how I've got here. So, you know, one of the things that helped was my application for my clinical associate professorship at the Sydney University of Sydney, where I had to write my summary statement. And that kind of came during the pandemic. And so I really had to kind of highlight what was my story. And my story to me involves things and the things that are important to me are mentorship. It's about PhD supervision It's not necessarily about the research output of PhDs. It's about advocacy. It's about leadership. It's about gender equity. And so they're the things that I'm really going to hone in on and focus on going forward. And I'm going to let go of things that don't add value to me in my career. And personally, that don't align with my own personal values of how I want to go forward. And I think that's going to be a big change, but a good one and a welcome one. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that brings importance, you know, how much do you really need to travel? 
portion of these meetings. Clarissa, for the pandemic for you, what do you learn and what motivates you to stay productive? So I was president of the Brazilian Society of Clinical Oncology during the pandemic times that my two years of presidency were during the pandemic. And this was really hard because Brazil was really hit in a very hard way. We lost more than 600,000 people and we have to continue to work at the clinic. We had to take care of cancer patients and it was really very hard times. And I really found a nest in my family, you know, with my husband and, and my children who are not children anymore. They're grown up, but it was great to develop this family nest. And I also found that, you know, you can really connect with people. I was also the the chair for IAC around the time. So we really learned how to interact through internet as we are doing now. And I also started the first week of the pandemic, I started a, a spiritual cult. Like a, in Brazil has many religions. So it was a multi-religion, a spiritual cult for patients. And we continue to do so every 15 days. And it's been a blessing time for me. So it was really starting to meditate, was connecting to old friends through internet. I think it was a grown time. Now that we will start to travel again, to meet people, I think it will be great. We're going to really value every moment. So it's been really hard times, but we, we were able to manage and to go through all of that. And also we created, the last thing I'm going to say, a program during my presidency at SBOC that was really to support physicians throughout the journey. And it was actually even mentioned at ASCO. We had a live with ASCO. We had a program and it was really wonderful to do so. So I, what I hear from the two of you is that you took the challenges and, you know, were able to not only pivot to try to appreciate and take those little things that, you know, sometimes we forget, but the two of you did also something during the pandemic is that you led during and previous to the pandemic. So both of you have led societies and organizations in your respective countries. I have two questions, the two of you related to that. What motivates you to be a president or director of those organizations? And how do you manage all these extra duties that come with those positions and the clinical work? Like Clarissa say, the clinical work didn't disappear during the pandemic. It may have just multiplied. Prunella, what made you let, you know, do that? And how do you manage all those extra responsibilities? So I was chair of the Medical Oncology Group of Australia up in, uh, in the years 2019 to 2021. And prior to that, I served many years on the executive committee and deputy chair. So that's certainly the largest leadership role that I've had in my career. It was, I was sort of in either right or wrong place at the right or wrong time, depending on how you view it. We were discussing succession of the chair for that group. And I really was the most senior of the possible options for that role. Um, I was still relatively junior at the time. Like this was maybe six years ago that, that we were discussing that succession. And so, you know what? I just put my hand up 
And I just thought, you know what, I can do this. You know what, I've got things to give here and I feel like I can make a positive impact on this group if I do this. The, and so that's how it came about. It was a little bit of imposter syndrome for me at the time. I'm like, I was sort of silently sweating. I walked away saying, oh, my God, what have I done? But it was endorsed by the executive committee of the group at the time. And so the deal was done. The response I got at that time was, you know, the people I expected perhaps was unexpected. Some people were really super encouraging, like, that's amazing. You're going to be great for the group. It's really good to see a young female there. Oh, wow. But there are others that were maybe raising their eyebrows at me and thinking, you know, maybe not directly saying to me, but at least silently expressing their views about whether, and they were dubious about whether I could carry out that role. It was the most amazing time, the most amazing thing I've done in my career, I would say. Like, how did I, I really feel like I had a positive impact. And I really think there were some legacies that were going to be ongoing in that group in Australia. How did I manage it? Oh, look, it's busy. There's overwhelming responsibilities. There's lots of support and it's largely about delegation. But I found as chair, you're often the decision maker. I knew it was for a defined amount of time. So that's what got me through. I knew I just had to vote myself to it for like two years in addition to my role, my usual clinical role. And it was busy. And But again, it was, I think, knowing that I only had two years in the role made it easier. And so, again, on a day-to-day basis, that came down to prioritising what was the most important and getting those most important things done. Looking back, I'd do it again. And I would encourage anyone who were remotely thinking about that opportunity to take it up and to go for it. Thank you, Prunella. Clarissa, I have the same question for you. Yeah, it was a real challenge to... I had thought about becoming a president of the Brazilian Society four years ago, but then it was really not the right timing. And then two years later, it came up again. And then I finally said, you know, it's now or never. So it was really a challenge to make things more inclusive and, you know, bring more people, bring more women into the organization. And I'm really, again, like Brunella, I'm really proud we did that. You know, we were very inclusive. We had lots of uh, programs to the members and we had actually an in-person meeting where for the first time in the medical oncology history of Brazil, we had half women, half men as speakers. We didn't have people repeating themselves and being speakers in multiple things. And, you know, so we really, the, the president of the meeting, the scientific part of the meeting was a woman, Angelica, who's great. So it was really wonderful to be part of this history. And I think for the future women, for the people who will come after us, they will see our time as really a point of change in the whole organization. Thank you, Clarissa. And I think we not only take time to do these roles, but also, you know, opening and being the first, it requires a lot of bravery, right? Because it's like, you will be the first in doing this, you will be the first woman doing that. And it is a large responsibility that we often forget that being the first has, is that, you know, you open the door, but also you have the responsibility to do an incredible job because you are the first and don't want to be the last. We are unfortunately about to run out of time, but I have 
two more questions for the two of you. One of them is that we have seen in the last two years, and this could have been fueled by the pandemic, but we're seeing a large exodus of women and men to industry and other non-clinical jobs. What is your opinion on this, Prunella? I'm not surprised, no, just... <laughs> You know, I think it comes back to the pandemic, doesn't it? People reevaluating what their job means to them. I don't know that we've seen it to a huge degree in on medical oncology in Australia. The job market is pretty tight for oncologists in Australia, so you can't move freely around because there's not a lot of jobs available. But I think in the whole of medicine and the whole of healthcare, that's certainly been experienced in other disciplines such as nursing. And again, I'm not surprised. People are, are disenchanted with their working conditions, with how hard the work has been during the pandemic, how, how ungratifying the work has been during the pandemic, how much it's relied on people as the resource, how much, you know, senior staff in particular have bore the brunt of the responsibility of the pandemic. We didn't necessarily bear the brunt of the actual work on the ground if you are not in those acute care specialties, but I think we bore the brunt of the bearing of carrying the load. So again, I'm not surprised. And I support those people who do that for the right reasons, because they're looking for something that ultimately is satisfying, is going to satisfy them going forward in their career in the future. I've certainly contemplated what my options are. Unfortunately, the more oncology you do, you, the better you get and the less skilled you are for other things. But I've certainly considered what else I would be, I could do. I'm staying put for now, by the way. I love it too much. <laughs> Thank you, Renela. Clarissa, what is your opinion about this exodus? Well, here in Brazil, we didn't have much this exodus, but I've seen this movement throughout the world. And I think the pandemic really brought a reality to think about what the goals of life are and how hard life can be and you know, how much you want to build in your life. So I think it, people have really changed and that makes a, a huge difference in how you approach your personal life and your professional life. So if we look, we've had an increase in the number of divorces and we've had the number of people going to psychiatrists and rethinking their lives. And that also happened in the medical profession. So the number of physicians were burnout were, were huge. So it, I may see that as a way of people thinking that maybe it will be less hard in industry and in other places than being a medical oncologist and dealing with uh, very hard issues on a daily life. That is correct. Thank you, Clarissa. And my last question to you is, if we, we have a lot of early career listeners. So these are residents, fellows who may be contemplating a career in oncology and in thoracic oncology. If you have one advice for this younger generation, what that advice will be? Prunella? I would totally say do it because it's such a, it's such a great career choice. I would encourage oncology. I would certainly encourage thoracic oncology. I love it so much and I personally got so much out of it. And I really think it's very gratifying. My second piece of advice would be do it, but do it your way. Don't be colored or don't be pressured by 
perceived expectations about what you think your career should look like. And I really feel very strongly about that. And I give that advice on a regular basis. I gave it to a trainee the other day when they were cons- contemplating what they might, their next steps might be. But amongst that conversation, they raised up, oh, but there's all these other people that are going to get jobs before me. And I said, you know what? Forget about them. Just focus on you. Focus on your strengths and what you want your career to look like. And you will get where you want to be. Just don't worry about other people. So I really think individual pathways, they're varying. There are many pathways to success. There's no right pathway, but the right pathway is your pathway. Love that. Clarissa, what is that one piece of advice? My piece of advice is be really faithful to yourself. And that's much along what Primella just said. So be faithful to what you think. Be faithful to what you believe. And uh, because one day, as one of my great friends says, one day at the end of your life, you're going to be asked, you know, being Clarissa, how did you behave? You know, did you behave your best way? And I think you, you have to be able to say, yes, I did. You know, I respected people and, you know, I respected myself. Thank you. And I think it is very important to be true to ourselves. I think that's the only way to happiness. And I learned that during training. So I appreciate the time and impatience of our guests, Dr. Matthias and Blitman. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to continue learning from you and see you in person very soon. Thank you so much. It was great to participate. Thank you, Prunella. Thank you, NJ. Thanks all the support people. I agree. It's been wonderful to chat this morning, Nadjus and Clarissa. Thanks so much. Thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And I hope you will tune in the first and third weeks of every month to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 